Let's open in a word of prayer, and we're going to continue our study of the Abrahamic Covenant. Father, we give you thanks for your goodness to us. We ask your blessing on our time here this evening as we're looking at this covenant that you made with Abraham. Help us to understand the uh, implications and uh, the things connected to it as it affects us today and as it affects how we see you working out your plan for the world throughout uh, the Bible. And so we commit this time to you. We're so thankful for your son, Jesus Christ, who came to die on the cross for uh, sin and that by trusting in him, we can have eternal life. And we pray in his name, amen. So we're in Genesis chapter 22, and this is really the last reference in our uh, passages that we've looked at about the Abrahamic covenant. Now, we need to understand that the passages that we have looked at, so chapter 12, 13, 15, 17, 18, and now chapter 22, these are not the only passages that talk about the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, it is mentioned in other places in the book of Genesis, but these are the main ones. Now, as you think about Genesis chapter 22, uh, what is the main storyline that's taking place in that chapter? Offering of Isaac, that's right. So this is when the Lord tells Abraham to take Isaac, his only uh, son, his only biological son between Abraham and Sarah. So he's the son of promise and God tells him to go take him and offer him as a burnt offering. So if you look at chapter 22, our, the, really the verses that are of primary interest to us are verses 15 through 19. Verses 15 through 19. Verse 15 begins, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand of the seashore. So we're starting to hear some of that covenantal language there. Blessing, I'm gonna bless you, I'm gonna multiply your descendants. They're gonna be like the stars, they're gonna be like the sand. It says, your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. That's very, another familiar phrase. Because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. So here we have the offering of Isaac the only son of Abraham and Sarah. Now, um, as you read this, there's places in here that sound like because of Abraham's obedience to offering Isaac, because of that, 
the Lord's going to fulfill the covenant that he has made with Abraham. It says in verse 16, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing, because you have done this thing, and have not withheld your son, your only son, I'm going to do this. Because you have done this, I'm going to do that. And at the end of verse 18, it says, because you have obeyed my voice. So oh, what's going on here? If, the, if there's other places that we've looked at where we don't see God saying to Abraham, you have to do something in order to receive the promises of this covenant, what's going on here? Well, if you look back to verse 1, we see that what's happening here is Abraham is being tested. In verse 1 it says, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. So this is a, this is a test, and it's a test in the sense of proving or confirming. So it's not a condition for the covenant. The Lord is not placing a condition on the covenant some 30 some years, 30 possibly 35 years after the covenant's been given. Isaac is going to be obviously old enough at this point to carry wood and do things like that. So it's possible that he's 10 years old, maybe even a little bit older at this point. And remember, when Isaac is born, Abraham had been under the covenant that God made with him for 25 years. So, I mean, roughly we're just adding 10 years to that. The, the covenant's been in force somewhere around 35 years or so. So this is a, this is a test to confirm um, Abraham. And so in verse 2, we see that Abraham is to take his son Isaac and offer him as a burnt offering. In verse 5, Abraham tells his servants to stay with the donkey while he and Isaac go worship. By the way, that's the first time the term worship appears in the Bible. They're going to go worship. And then he says, and we will come back to you. So the Lord's already told uh, him to offer his son as a burnt offering. But Abram, Abraham says to his servants, we're going to go worship and then we are going to come back to you. So that starts to show us a little bit about what's going on in Abraham's mind. And of course, uh, they get up there and there's no lamb to offer. So the question is, where's the lamb? And the answer is God will provide. And so Abraham ties Isaac up, puts him on the altar, is getting ready to kill him when the angel of the Lord stops him. And so then the angel of the Lord says, for now I know that you fear God. And in this particular instance, the angel of the Lord here is the Lord, is the Lord himself. I, I know that you fear God. Here we see that the test was not for whether Abraham would receive the promise of the Abrahamic covenant, but to see if he still feared God now that he has an heir. Margaret. Is the angel of the 
Well, the Lord. <laughs> He's the Lord. That's about all we, we can say. But the, the test here is not in, in relation to the covenant, but it's to see whether he feared the Lord. It says, now I know you fear the Lord. You fear the Lord. Not now I know you can receive the covenant. I know you fear the Lord. So this is essentially an opportunity for Abraham to demonstrate his faith. That's what's happening in this chapter. It's not adding or taking away anything from the Abrahamic covenant that's already been given. So in these verses, we find the reference to the Abrahamic covenant that had been, uh, the covenant that had been made in chapter 12, confirmed in chapter 15, and detailed in chapter 17. So it's not adding any new information about the covenant here. It is expressing Abraham's faith in the promises that God has made to him. Namely, the promise that the covenant blessings are going to be for Isaac and will go through Isaac. Okay, so that's, that's what Abraham is trusting in. So uh, we've taken a good bit of time, probably maybe too much time, in some cases, to go over some of these key passages to show how the Abrahamic covenant was initially given, how it was confirmed, and how more details are given, and further explanation is given, and how it has all been accepted by faith on the part of Abraham. So any other questions about this particular chapter? Genesis 22, in relation to the Abrahamic covenant. You might have lots of questions about this chapter. but Okay. Well, now let's take a look at the provisions of the Abrahamic covenant. We've been reading a lot about it, but we haven't really came out and listed them or anything. And this was part of the homework that I gave you several weeks ago to go through these passages that we're studying and list the promises, blessings, provisions, whatever you want to call them, but list these. And so I'm not going to put anybody on the spot. Um, I'm just going to go through and kind of give you what I have, okay? But we do need to turn back to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to start there. And we're just going to kind of work through 12, 13, 15, 17, 18, and 22. Okay? And I'm not going to, go, I'm not going to read these again. Um, you just need to, to see where these covenantal passages are at. So in Genesis chapter 12... The personal blessings, the personal promises, provisions that Abraham is given is he's, he is given a land. Uh, he's going to go to a land. That's one. Also, the Lord says, I'm going to make you a great nation. He says, I'm going to bless you, Abraham. I'm going to make your name great. That's, that's number four. Number five, 
uh, excuse me, that's number four, and, and that ends the personal blessings in Genesis 12. Okay, the other blessings are either going to be national or universal. And so the national blessings are, uh, and some, one thing to remember is sometimes these personal blessings to Abraham and the national blessings kind of mix. Okay, they just, they go both ways, all right? So um, they might not be necessarily unique. But in verse 2, we see that a nation will come from Abraham and will be great. I will make you a great nation. Um, and so that's the, that's really the national blessings here, other than maybe we could say um, a blessing that relates to people who curse the nation or bless the nation. Um, the universal blessing in this chapter is found in verse 3. And so in verse 3, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who the opposite is curse those who curse you. So that's, that's, coming, that's more than just talking about Abraham and uh, the nation that comes from Abraham being blessed. So these are, this is the Lord blessing other people who are not connected to uh, the covenant. Um, we also see in verse 3 that all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the families. So that's, a, that's the universal uh, blessing. Okay? Now let's turn to chapter 13. Chapter 13. And verse 14 and 15. We see here that there's the personal blessing, the personal blessing of Abraham being given land. Okay? It, it, this is where it says, look around you, look to the north, south, east, west, all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants uh, forever. So Abram's given a land and he's given land by the Lord. Now, we also see in these verses the, a national blessing because it says that the nation that comes from Abraham is given the land. It says uh, there in verse 15, I give to you and your descendants forever. So they're given the land as well. We see in, also in verse 16, that the descendants of Abraham will be as the dust of the earth. So he's going to have many, many uh, descendants. So that's another national blessing. It's not going to be a small nation. It's going to be a large nation. Now, there's no universal blessings in, in chapter 13. So let's go to chapter 15. Chapter 15. And again, we'll start with the personal blessings. In chapter 15, verse 4, verse 4, we see the blessing that Abraham will have an heir from his own body. So he's going to biologically produce an heir. In verse 5, 
we see that his descendants will be as the stars of the heaven. So they're going to, again, this is another expression of how numerous they're going to be. So as the stars of the heaven. So that's, that's to Abraham. Abraham, your descendants are going to be as many as the stars of the heaven. In verse 7, Abraham is given the land. So the reiteration of the land. He's going to give him a land to inherit. Then in verse 15, in verse 15, uh, Abraham is told he's going to live to a nice old age and live in peace. So again, that's a blessing. That's a, that's a blessing that we see here. Now, as for the national blessings here, back to verse 5, the national blessings, the blessing that Abraham's descendants will be as numerous as the stars of the heavens, that's, a, that's also a national. It's not just a personal blessing. It's also a national blessing. We see in verse 16, there is the blessing that the the fourth generation is going to return to the land after sojourning in another land. So the blessing there is even though four generations of Abraham's descendants will not be in the land, they will come to it. They'll come back to it. So that's a, that's a blessing. And again, we don't really see any universal blessing here, not, not for all peoples. So let's go to chapter 17. Chapter 17, again, starting with the personal blessings. In verse 2, Abraham said to be multiplied. Um, Abraham's not going to just be the father of a nation. He's going to be the father of a multitude of nations, verse 4. Verse 6, Abraham's going to be exceedingly fruitful. We also see uh, in verse 6 that nations will be made from Abraham and kings will come from Abraham. Verse 8, the land that is given to Abraham will be an everlasting possession. So it's his forever. Verse 19 Got to go all the way towards the end of the chapter now. But verse 19, we see that the heir that has been promised to Abraham is going to come through Sarah. Sarah, his wife, will have a son. So that's a personal promise to Abraham. Also in verse 19, the covenant that God has made with Abraham is going to be established with his son Isaac. So that's, a, that's another blessing to Abraham, that his son takes part in the covenant. The covenant is just as well done with Isaac as it is with Abraham. Verse 20, verse 20, Ishmael receives a blessing. So that's, a, that's another blessing from God to Abraham. Now, the national promises here, there's two of those. In verse 7, so if you go back to 17, 7, we see that the covenant is extended to Abraham's descendants forever. 
It says, and I, that's the Lord, will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generation for an everlasting covenant. Okay, so it's extended to the descendants of Abraham forever. In verse 8, we see that the land aspect of the covenant is also to his descendants, the nation that will come from him, as an everlasting possession. This is their land forever. And so now we turn to chapter 18. Chapter 18 and the personal provisions for Abraham here. So chapter 18, verse 17. Chapter 18, verse uh, 17. We see the, a, a blessing that comes to Abraham in the context of this passage is that the Lord is going to tell Abraham what he's about to do. And, and this is connected to Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. So the Lord says, I'm going to tell Abraham what I'm about to do. In verse 18, we see the reiteration of the fact that Abraham will be a great and mighty nation. And so that's also part of the national promise that comes to, that's attached to the Abrahamic covenant, that there's a nation that comes out of Abraham that will be great and mighty. And also in verse 18 here, we see that the universal promise or, or provision is, is restated as well. All the nations of the earth will be blessed in Abraham. So that's, that universal provision is found in chapter 12 and here again in chapter 18. Now finally in chapter 22 where we began, we see provisions like Abraham is going to be greatly blessed in verse 17, that he's going to be greatly multiplied in verse 17. That's, those are personal promises by God to Abraham. We see that the national promises is that the seed of Abraham will be greatly multiplied. So it's talking about the seed. This is a blessing to them. They are going to multiply. And verse 17, uh, and particularly the end of it, I think this is a, my personal opinion is that this is a, the blessing of um, the coming Messiah, but it, it's, so I think it's messianic, but it says here at the last phrase of verse 17, so look at that, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. Uh, so that, that's not the best translation in the world. Because it literally says, your seed, singular, shall possess the gate of his enemies, not their enemies. So it's not descendants, it's singular, it's either descendant or seed, it's actually the word seed there, and it's just translated as descendants, your seed, singular, shall possess the gate of his enemies. Well, you know, you, you try to puzzle that out and try to figure, well, what could that be talking 
about. And I guess you might, you might say, well, this is, could be talking about David. But I think in the, when you think of it prophetically, this is ultimately going to end up with the Messiah, Jesus, will be referred to here. So, um, so I think that that's definitely more than just a personal promise to Abraham. Um, and also here in verse 18 in chapter 22, we see the universal blessing that is, again, repeated. All the nations of the earth will be blessed in Abraham's seed. I, I think, again, because of the end of verse 17, this brings out the messianic character of this promise as well. And your seed, singular, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So those are the provisions. I'm, uh, probably if we spent more time on it, we might be able to think of other things that are included in there. Certainly, if we looked at all the passages that related to the Abrahamic covenant and went through each one in detail, we could probably give more details to these blessings. But in general, these are the blessings or the provisions or the promises of Israel. So the initial giving of the covenant of Abraham and its subsequent reiterations. So the giving of the covenant is in chapter 12. Everything after that is a reiteration of that covenant and its blessings. It shows us when we look at these that there are personal aspects to the promises attached to the Abrahamic covenant. There are national aspects that are connected to Abraham's descendants after him. And there are universal there's a, at least a universal aspect and that all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through Abraham, particularly what we just looked at in chapter 22 is through his seed, singular. They will be blessed. Now, in light of the universal blessing that we have just talked about, we can conclude that just because someone receives a blessing from the Abrahamic covenant does not mean that the covenant is for them. Okay? Just because you get a blessing from the covenant does not mean the covenant is actually for you. You are just receiving a blessing because of the covenant. All right? So the reason that all the families of the earth are going to be blessed is not because all the families of the earth are a party in the covenant. Okay, there's that when the covenant is given, there are two parties to it, right? God's party one, party two is Abraham. God then says to Abraham later on, I'm establishing my covenant with your descendants. And he particularly does that with Isaac and Jacob. But we see that. But there's other people who are not parties of the, we are not parties of this covenant that God has made with Abraham. But we are recipients due to the blessings of the covenant. So God didn't make this covenant with us. But still, because of this covenant, we do receive blessings. 
Okay, it would be the same way as saying, um, you know, God has made a covenant with Israel and I'm a Gentile and I own a kosher deli in the land of Israel. Am I going to receive a blessing even though I'm, I'm a Gentile living in Israel? Yeah, I'll receive a, a blessing because all the Jews are going to come to my kosher deli and they're going to buy from me and I'm going to get rich. You know, so I'll, I'll get a, a blessing from that. Um, and, and so we see that just because people receive a blessing from the covenant doesn't mean they're a part of the covenant. So you can't think, oh, I get a blessing from the covenant. That means I am part of this covenant. No. No, it means you get a blessing from the covenant, despite the fact you're not a party of it. Despite the fact you're not party to it. That, this will become more important later. So any questions about those provisions? Again, I was trying to be representative, not exhaustive in that. Okay, let's move on to the next portion in our notes and this talks about the nature of the Abrahamic covenant and uh, what I mean by the nature of the Ham Abrahamic covenant is the, the question of whether the Abrahamic covenant is conditional or unconditional. We've mentioned this along the way and so hopefully you already have the idea that this covenant is unconditional. However, this is a, this is a serious matter and uh, the question has to be asked and answered. Because how you answer this question de depends on how you're going to basically view the rest of the Bible after this. Um, if, if the covenant that God made with Abraham is conditional, it affects what you think about the church and it affects what you think about the end times. Okay? If you believe it's unconditional, you come up with a totally different view of the church and the end times. All right? If you think the Abrahamic covenant was conditional, usually it goes, God gave conditions for the Abrahamic covenant. Because the Jews did not meet those conditions, and because they, in fact, have rejected their Messiah, which is sort of like the ultimate rejection of the Abrahamic covenant, therefore, God has set them aside. And they are no longer his people. And now the church is the people of God. And they have become the recipients of all the Abrahamic promises. So you see how it affects. Now, of course, the people who hold that, they think that once the church receives the Abrahamic promises, the Abrahamic covenant, it goes from being conditional to unconditional, which is very convenient if you believe that and you're a part of the church. Okay? So... Uh, if you believe that the Abrahamic covenant was unconditional, you would believe that God never does away with these promises he's made to Abraham, that he will be faithful to the promises no matter what. And this means that the church does not replace Israel in any way. 
that there are two distinct entities that God is working with throughout history, one being Israel, the other being the church. And um, their purposes in history um, complement each other. They don't contradict each other or replace each other. Okay. So anyway, that's a little bit of the reason why this is important. So we need to understand that there's some people who claim, you know, smart people who claim that the Abrahamic covenant was conditional. And uh, if we had to put these people in a category, we would call them, for the most part, post-millennial people who, who believe that Christ returns after the millennium, amillennial people who don't believe that there's any literal millennium, um, and, and covenant theology folks. Uh, so I'm going to lump them in, in that category. I'm going to read a couple quotations from these people and, and uh, see if you can pick out what they're saying as far as the Abrahamic covenant being conditional. First guy from about 100 years ago, 90 years ago. Quote, the mass of those who then called themselves Israelites ceased to be such for prophetic and covenant purposes, having forfeited their, uh, their citizenship in the commonwealth of Israel by refusing to accept the Messiah, and that after this event, all the privileges of the Abrahamic covenant and all the promises of God belong to the believe, belonging to the believing remnant and to them only, which remnant was therefore and thereafter the true Israel and Judah, the seed of Abraham, the Christian church. It may seem harsh to say that, but God is through with the Jews. But the fact of the matter is that he is through with them as a unified national group. Okay, so that's one of these folks who are representing very clear because Israel has rejected the Messiah God's through with them they have they have rejected their privilege and the Abrahamic covenant here's a guy who's a little bit closer this particular guy is still alive now uh, let me read what he says quote contrary to what some would have us believe the Abrahamic covenant uh, covenant was not unconditional Otherwise, why would God have said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you? Genesis 17, 9. First, God says that he will do, then he outlines what Abraham must do to keep the covenant. God demanded obedience of Abraham and his offspring in receiving and keeping his gracious offer. Elsewhere, it is also made clear that the promise of the land was conditional based on continuing obedience. Now, this particular scholar cites Genesis 17, 9. Now, since we already covered this, you know Genesis 17 is about circumcision. And so when God says, I'm going to establish my covenant with you, and this is what you have to do, Abraham, in keeping my covenant... The Bible specifically says this covenant is circumcision, not the Abrahamic covenant. It says it is circumcision. So he's confusing things here. He's not distinguishing between circumcision, what circumcision is, and what the covenant is. 
And circumcision is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. It's not the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, so he's confusing that. And then at the end when he says that the promised land was conditional based on continuing obedience, he again confuses things. There is a conditionality with the land, but the conditionality is living in the land and receiving the blessings of the land. And you see this throughout uh, the rest of the Old Testament, that if the nation of Israel wants to live in the land that God has promised, they must be obedient. It, particularly, they must be obedient to the Mosaic Covenant. If they obey, Deuteronomy tells us this clearly, if they obey, they'll be blessed. If they don't obey, they're going to be cursed and God's going to get them out of the land. If they sin and rebel against God, God's going to get them out of the land. So there's a conditionality there, but it's not connected to the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Okay? Israel being in the land is not fulfillment of the covenant. Just because they're there doesn't mean the covenant is fulfilled. Today, there's plenty of Jews who live in at least part of the land. But this is not a part of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. So these men, that, well, let me quote one more here. He's much more, I think, honest with uh, the argument of scripture, but then he goes past it a little bit. Quote, it is true in the express terms of the covenant with Abraham, obedience is not stated as a condition. So he, he admits that in the words of the covenant, there's no condition for Abraham. Back to the quotation. But that obedience was presupposed is clearly indicated by two facts. The one is that obedience is the precondition of blessing under all circumstances. The second fact is that in the case of Abraham, the duty of obedience is particularly stressed. Now, get what he just said. There's nothing in the text that tells us it's conditional, but, okay, but, I'm getting ready to contradict myself is what he's saying. I'm going to contradict myself. Presupposed, presupposed in the covenant is the condition that if you want to be blessed, you got to do certain things. So he says that's pre it's not in there, but we're going to presuppose it. It's not what the Bible says. We'll just presuppose that it's true. You see the problem with that? He's reading his presuppositions into the text of the Bible. The other one is that he says, well, this is particularly stressed in the case of Abraham. Now think about that. He just said, there's nothing in the text that talks about a condition that Abraham needs to meet to get the Abrahamic covenant. But it's stressed. How can it be stressed if it's not even written in the text? Makes no sense. Okay, where's the stress? And, and as far as um, obedience being the precondition of blessing under all circumstances, how do you explain grace? It kind of does away with grace. Because grace specifically says there's no condition of obedience. 
There's a condition of faith. So anyway, these three men represent what can be just really classified as a non-dispensational view of the Abrahamic covenant. And they think it's conditional that Abraham had to meet certain conditions in order for the covenant to stand. And, and really their theology of end times dictates that they have to view it this way as they believe that Israel as a nation has no place in God's end times plan and that the church has in some way or form replaced Israel. So that's the, that is the predominant position in the church today. That is the predominant, predominant position in the church. Well, now let's think about this. Is the Abrahamic covenant really unconditional? Really unconditional. Go back to chapter 12. So this, this is where it's all starting. So let's go look at this chapter 12. Really quick, you know, you already know these verses, first three verses. I think the strongest evidence for the unconditionality of the Abrahamic covenant is the I will statements in this chapter, these verses. He says, um, get out of your country from your family, from your father's house to a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the I will statements here reveal that God is the one who is acting to make all of these things happen. In addition to the I will statements is the fact that nowhere is Abraham told to do anything as a prerequisite or even a response in, in receiving these blessings. Finally, even in those instances where Abraham is connected to an action, such as where it says, you shall be a blessing, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham, there's some action there that Abraham's connected to. Abraham is always treated as being passive in the action. He's not doing anything. At best, he's only acting as a conduit through which these blessings takes place. There's no requirement placed upon him to do anything. But the question is still raised. How are what seem to be commands in verse 1 explained? Get out of your country, get away from your family, get away from your father's house. How do we explain these, what seem to be commands? It seems that Abraham's receiving the promises of verses two and three are conditioned upon Abraham following these commands. So here's what people have said, right? So we already know what the other people say. It's all conditional. Here's people who say, who would hold to the Abrahamic covenant is unconditional, but here's how they explain these uh, commands. First, as they say, well, this is an initial condition. This is an, ini this is an initial condition. Abraham leaving the land of Ur was in fact a condition, but it was the only condition. This is what they say. Let me read. 
quote, it's important to observe the relationship of obedience to this covenant program. Whether God would institute a covenant program with Abraham or not depended upon Abraham's act of obedience and leaving the land of Ur. When once this act was accomplished and Abraham did obey God, God instituted an irrevocable, unconditional program. Except for the original condition of leaving his homeland and going to a promised land, the covenant is made with no conditions whatsoever. It's rather a prophetic declaration of God that what will certainly come, of what will certainly come to pass. So here we see that they're basically saying the promises of the covenant are unconditional, but the making of the covenant is conditioned upon Abraham leaving the land. So think about the differences between those two things. The making of the covenant is conditional. But when the covenant is made, the promises of the covenant are unconditional. The fulfillment of the covenant is unconditional. So there's a difference between those two. First, for God to make the covenant with Abraham, he has to leave his country and go to the land that God's going to show him. But once God makes the covenant, then all the promises, the fulfillment of the promises in the covenant are unconditional. So when I first thought about this position, I didn't like it, but I, I'm liking it more and more because it shows this, the, the distinction here. There's a difference between the making of the covenant, what's involved up to the point when God makes the covenant, than what's involved after the point of the covenant being made. Okay, so that's, that's two different things. Up to the covenant, then after the covenant. Up to the covenant, God has said, get out of your land, from your family, from your father's house. Abraham has to respond to that. Then after that, the covenant is made, and now all the promises, the fulfillment of those promises are unconditional. So I kinda, I'm liking that one more and more. Here's another one. Um, some people take this as there's no condition, it's an invitation. There's no condition involved, it's an invitation. So God is inviting Abraham to leave his land, his father, and his family and follow him. Okay, I, sometimes I think, well, that's, that's a distinction without a real difference. Okay, because actually a command in Hebrew can either be a command, as in telling someone to do something, or it can also be an invitation, asking somebody to do something. It just depends on the context. Uh, that, this is hard to, um, to make a decision about. Is it a command or is it an invitation? But this position notes that the grammar of these verses emphasize the intention of God to bless Abraham, not any obligations. So there's no, there's, there's no emphasis put on any obligations here. The emphasis is, in fact, in just God blessing Abraham. The final view is that 
um, that there were conditions, but the conditions were only to Abraham. So the difference between this position and the first position is that the first position said that there was a condition for making the covenant. And that condition was Abraham to leave his father and family. This third position is the position that says, no, there were covenant, there were conditions to the covenant, but Abraham fulfilled all the conditions and now it is unconditional. I think that is not the right view, okay? However, any of these views, any of these three that I've just given you, which ultimately all three hold that now, today, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant is unconditional. All three of these views uh, do away with the idea that the, the covenant theologians say that the Abrahamic covenant was perpetually conditional all the way up to the time of Christ. They, do away, they don't accept that at all. They reject that. They can handle that. So let's look at some passages, some other passages that I think uh, clearly show the unconditionality of the Abrahamic covenant. So turn to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50, verse 24. So this is only after this verse there's only two more verses left in the book of Genesis so we're at the end of Genesis and it says Joseph said to his brethren I'm dying but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land which he swore to Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob so Joseph says God's going to do this he swore that he would do this this is talking about the Abrahamic covenant there's no conditions mentioned Joseph doesn't say, be sure that you live right. Be sure that you obey all the commands of God so God will give you the land. That's not what he says. He says, God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land which he swore to Abraham. Okay? God's going to do this because of the promise he made to Abraham, not because anybody's keeping conditions. All right? So turn over a couple pages to Exodus chapter 2, verse 24. Exodus 2, 24. It says, so God heard their groaning. That's the children of Israel's groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we see here that although the initial giving of the covenant was made to Abraham, it was extended to include particularly Isaac and Jacob and beyond Jacob, the nation of Israel. There's no conditions that are mentioned here. It's just the fact that God remembered his covenant. Okay? It didn't say you got to do this or you got to do that. It just says God remembered the covenant. So this is the kind of language that happens throughout the Pentateuch. So let's turn to the very end of the Pentateuch, to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy chapter 4. This is the instructions to the second generation in the wilderness who are preparing to enter the promised land. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 31. 
Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 31 says, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not forsake you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant of your fathers, which he swore to them. That's talking about the Abrahamic covenant. Now, what's so interesting about this particular text is that it comes after the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Those 40 years of wandering in the wilderness are characterized by disobedience and a lack of trust in God by the children of Israel. But here Moses says God is not going to forget the covenant he made with the fathers. He's not going to forget that covenant he made with Abraham. Uh, another passage that's related to this is Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. And then in the historical books, 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 23. 2 Kings chapter 13, Verse 23. But what, what you know and what you notice in all these is that there's no conditions that are placed on the people of Israel for the covenant that God made with Abraham. Now let's shift to the New Testament here quickly. Shift to the New Testament and go to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Verse 72. Luke chapter 1, verse 72. The context here is of Zacharias prophesying at the birth of his son, John the Baptist. The topic of this prophecy is going to be Jesus, the Messiah, not John the Baptist. And so... In verse 72, it says, to perform mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Now, what's the holy covenant? Verse 73, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. So it's the Abrahamic, so he's invoking the Abrahamic covenant here. So this, this is showing to us that despite Israel's years and years of disobedience and rebellion towards God, the promise, uh, promises in the Abrahamic covenant are still intact and they're not conditioned on anything except for God doing his part. There's no conditions to Israel at all. Turn over a few more pages in your Bible to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, verses 25 and 26. Acts chapter 3, verses 25 and 26. Uh, verse 25. So this is Peter preaching to Jews. It says, You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay? 
So he's talking about the Abrahamic covenant. Now, what's amazing about this is this is after the crucifixion. This is after the resurrection. This is after the ascension. And Peter is still saying to Jews, not Gentiles, to Jews, the Abrahamic covenant is still in force. The promises are still there waiting to be fulfilled. It hasn't been fulfilled yet. They're waiting to be fulfilled. And uh, we see this same kind of thing in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 and 17 through 18. I'm not going to uh, go into that. But Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, 17 through 18. So what we see from Scripture is that the Abrahamic covenant is not conditioned on any activity of obedience, faithfulness, or even just faith in God. The only thing that has to happen for the Abrahamic covenant to be fulfilled is for God to keep his promises. That's it. There's no condition for Abraham. There was no condition placed on Isaac or Jacob or their descendants. And there's no condition placed on Israel today. So let me summarize why the Abrahamic covenant is unconditional. Number one, all of Israel's covenants, with the exception of the Mosaic covenant, are unconditional. They're, they're all unconditional except for the Mosaic covenant. Number two, in the Abrahamic covenant, no condition is stated. None is stated. None is given. Number three, the confirmation of the covenant or the reiteration of the covenant cannot add conditions. Cannot add conditions. Number four, the covenant was confirmed with an unqualified oath by God. We see that in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. It's an unqualified oath. Number five, the sign of the covenant is circumcision. It is not a condition for the covenant. Circumcision is not a condition for the covenant. Number six, the covenant was restated to Isaac and Jacob with no conditions. Number seven, the covenant was confirmed in spite of Israel's disobedience. So it was still confirmed even though they had disobeyed. Number eight, the covenant was confirmed despite the fact of Israel's apostasy, totally turning from God, and the covenant was still stated as being in force. Number nine, the covenant was declared to be immutable, unchanged, cannot be changed. And number 10, the unconditionality of the covenant, covenant is confirmed by later revelation or later passages of scripture. So the covenant is given as an unconditional covenant. And what we see is that throughout the rest of the Bible, it's treated as an unconditional covenant.
So Bible students may argue over whether the language of the giving of the Abrahamic covenant was conditional or not. They might argue over that and they say, well, this is a condition. Well, that's not a condition. They might argue over that. But what they can't argue about is the fact that the rest of Scripture treats the Abrahamic covenant as unconditional. And that's informative to us. It's just as striking that in the New Testament that it affirms that God will be faithful to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant even after the Jews have rejected and killed the Messiah. Any questions about the unconditionality of the covenant? Frank, real quick. Yes. Um, you need to say more than that. <laughs> well, so the no, I think the you you're trying to get to salvation, right? So. No, I mean, I, I would not use that as an illustration. I would, I would take it as the making of the covenant in Genesis chapter 1. For the covenant to be made, a condition has to be met. That's Abraham leaving the land and family. After that, the covenant is made, and the promises of the covenant are unconditional. They will, there's no condition for the promises of the covenant to be fulfilled. Um, that's the way I would, I would uh, take that past. I don't think grace is, and salvation is an exact analogy to that. And I wouldn't want to get those. There might be something there, but I wouldn't want to try to get those and be confusing. Um, let me just say about the duration of the covenant, because we've covered all these passages before. But if you go back and you look at those chapters, anywhere in those chapters, and you see everlasting covenant, covenant forever, that tells you how long the Abraham covenant is for. It's an everlasting covenant. That means the promises attached are everlasting promises. So the duration is forever. The duration is uh, forever. So we're going to stop there tonight. And um, next week, I'll just say some things about the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and why it's needed. But then after that, we're going to move to the land covenant. Okay. Now, the land covenant is called different things. Some people call it the Palestinian covenant. You know, there's all sorts of names for it. Um, I'm just going to stick with the land covenant. I'll explain some of that titling, some of the reasons why they call them those names. But I'm just going to try to stick with the land covenant because it focuses on the land. Um, 
And uh, almost all the passages that we'll look at are passages we have already looked at. <laughs> okay. Um, but we'll look at some of those a, a little bit closer. So that's what we're going to tackle next week. We'll finish off the Abrahamic covenant with the fulfillment and, and the reason why we have the Abrahamic covenant. That's something good for you to think about this week. Why the Abrahamic covenant? Why did God establish this covenant with Abraham? Well, what, what purpose does it have in connection to the rest of history? Before and after the covenant, after the giving of the covenant. How's it connect to everything? So think about that, because that, that'll help explain why we have uh, this covenant. Okay? All right, so that's all we got for this evening. And so we'll conclude with that. So we're uh, dismissed, or if anybody has any other questions or comments, we'll take those now.